Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this Monday, the 13th of March in the great year of 2023. As always, I want to say welcome to Stephanie Howard, Scott Kraft, Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer. We are absent. Our good friend Christine called uh, today. She's probably on another Caribbean cruise somewhere. Uh, who knows? Uh, so far today, it appears that uh, you have some feistiness on the part of uh, Terry Fletcher and uh, myself. And, you know, as we were getting ready to go live on air, I realized that, you know, I really am from the South. I am using 100% pure free range chicken poop lip junk. That's what it's called. I can't make this stuff up. Chicken poop. Right yeah, there. You, you bring a new you bring a new definition to um you know the green movement yeah <laughs> and yet people still want me as their expert for cases all right so we have a lot going on today and obviously we would be remiss if we did not start off by talking about another banking scam and most likely what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank. Now, I know we are a healthcare uh, compliance podcast roundtable. Um, that's actually the Brown Movement. <laughs> yes, that, that, very, that very easily could be the Brown Movement, my uh, chicken poop lip uh, junk. Um, but I want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank. And I know some of you are probably wondering, well, Sean, you know, why are you talking about that if this is a healthcare podcast? Well, Paul, I want to start with you. Why are we talking about Silicon Valley Bank? Well, Silicon Valley Bank has been around for over 40 years. They started as a uh, as a bank who uh, basically funds Silicon Valley, as the name would uh, be put forth. The reason why we're talking about it on a healthcare podcast is that the estimates, the early estimates are that uh, they have provided 80 billion, that's with a B, dollars in startup money for uh, tech startups in healthcare. Uh, and that's just healthcare. Um, so, and the reasons for this failure are a little bit different than the reasons why we saw failures in 2008. Obviously, in 2008, the bank uh, failures were tied to the mortgage crisis, and this ends up being the second biggest bank failure uh, in the history of the United States behind Washington Mutual back in 2008. Uh, the biggest reason for there are two big reasons for this failure. One is that the uh, California regulators clearly did not do their job in looking at their capitalization and their debt. And the biggest reason why this failed is that, uh, you know, you've, you've heard of venture capital firms. These guys were a venture debt firm more than anything else. And the way they leveraged that debt 
was through uh, bonds. And right now we have something of an inverted yield curve on bonds that led to that bank failing uh, to the point where they are now undercapitalized. Um, I did see uh, this morning that the Bank of England bought the British uh, assets of Silicon Valley Bank for the for the grand total of one pound. Uh, so and uh, you've got to think that that is a post Brexit pound. So that's not even a pound as we knew it as in our childhood. Uh, so uh, the American uh, the American side of this PNC and the Royal Bank of Canada uh, were in the mix to pick up the assets. And then they looked at the books and now they're hedging a little bit as anybody who's in good shape would uh, with a bank this size. And it's also having an offshoot of uh, taking out uh, a few other banks, uh, including one uh, other. And uh, and there is another bank that is failing in New York, but that has to do with cryptocurrency. Uh, and here's my one reminder about investing. Virtual anything is not anything. I can walk into a bar and say, hey, I'm virtually George Clooney. And my friend Fish, the bartender, would say, you're flagged, you're out of here, go home. Uh, so remember, kids, only invest in things that are real. And I'm done. All right. So uh, obviously, obviously, you know, there's a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered about the insolvency of this bank, uh, how its uh, members will be protected under the FDIC. I know Biden has come out and said everyone will be made whole under the FDIC. But remember, FDIC only insures the banks up to $250,000 per account. So be aware of that. Um, the big question that looms is, will this become another buyout or not buyout, but another bailout of the banking system by a U.S. government? And if so, what will this do to the average everyday taxpayer like the five of us that are on here today? So. Just some things to think about, but there are more and more banks that over the last decade have found themselves getting heavily involved in the financing of startups for medical practices, for ASCs, for all kinds of ventures that physicians and hospitals and uh, medical group practices uh, wish to embark on. So uh, I'll open it up, Scott. Stephanie, Terry, anything that you want to add? And then we're going to move right into our uh, coding aspect of today. Terry's emphatically shaking her head. No. <laughs> Stephanie, no. Scott, any comment? Nope. No commentary. Wow. Paul was the only brave taker on this one. All right. Well, <clears throat> then I want to go to Terry. And I want to start with you, Terry, on what's going on with the change that was just announced at the beginning of this month by the American Medical Association and American Medical Association that kind of flew under the radar until it started getting some uh, publication over the last, I don't know what, four or five days is when I first started seeing it. And it has to do with what? It has to do with the independent interpretation of tests under the category two on the moderate side of um, the ENM coding, or it's part of um, the, or on the high side of ENM coding. 
And actually, Scott will be able to speak to this as well, because we're going to commiserate and cry in our soup over this unfortunate, I call it an unfortunate update, I think. And when I say that, I, I feel like sometimes people read me the wrong way and think that I'm not a proponent of the doctors being able to do as much as they can to, and I hate this phrase, but maximize the reimbursement. But I, I like to call it capture what they're doing. Okay. So if you're, if I want you to capture what you're doing, but I don't want you to double dip. And when I see that AMA comes out with something that's completely contradictory to what they tell people to do for category one, I think it opens up a can of worms. So the errata said basically that the independent interpretation of tests, which I have always been saying, and I know Scott and I have had this conversation, that if you order the test, the independent part is gone because you ordered it. So you have, you, you know, you, you're now a party to that test. And if you try to order it and also um, use it as an independent interpretation, it now gets muddied because now you can upcode, and we know that's a legal, also a legal term. I've been in so many arbitrations about that, and to possibly a moderate level because it's in the moderate level decision making. Well, the problem is, is that the CPT book says on page 14 and 15 that if you order a test, you can't also review it. So why do you get to order a test but also get credit for an independent interpretation? That makes no sense to me. And I actually have posted this to LinkedIn because I was so annoyed. And somebody had said, well, Terry, I'm sorry you feel that way, but most physicians, or I think she actually said all, all physicians are looking at films. No, they're not. They are not looking at films, not all of them. I mean, in a beautiful world, in, in somebody's fantasy, that would be awesome. See, I'm being mean now. But it's just basically, if you are looking at a film and the patient didn't get an interpretation that the, the radiologist or whoever provided the original image basically just did one because they are get their, you know, they're billing for that at the hospital. And so really didn't go over it with the patient. Now the patient's getting that, I hate to call it an overread, but another interpretation. And it's an interpretive conversation with a film, then I'm all for it. I think that's, you know, that was a great update. But if it's the same thing as you ordered a test and you're just reading through all of this information and giving a result and trying to slide in the independent interpretation, which providers will, I've seen it. I think this is wrong. I think it's going to open things up for a problem. So I'm, I'm having a little stress about that, uh, but back to you, Scott, because I know that you and I uh, talked about it. So, yeah. So we, let me go to you, Scott. Go ahead. We're very, we're, we're very synced up on this and we always have been. And um, I fully agree as a wordsmith that independent has certain connotations. And when you are the person who orders something, it's not independent, right? And and my concern about this, I've had a number of very interesting and productive conversations about this over the last couple of years, mostly rooted around the notion of provider expertises and various workflows. And my concern with this change is it sort of licenses en masse independent review of imaging, and it enables larger health systems in particular, but really any health system to create a workflow where an ordering provider orders a test that goes over to the radiologist who then bills the test. And it comes back to, we'll use orthopedics as an example. It comes back to orthopedics and orthopedics basically looks at the film and says, yeah, it's a close fracture. And that can happen 
every single time, right? And so I, I have trouble discerning the distinction between scenario A, where the rate where the orthopedist has the X-ray machine in the office, orders the X-ray, bills the interpretation, gets no credit whatsoever under the data category versus they don't have the x-ray in the office. They send it to a radiologist, the radiologist bills it, it comes back and the orthopedist just holds up the film and reads it and sort of does a confirmatory overread. I, I mean, I don't love the word either. And, and when I go back to some of these great conversations that we had, a lot of it had to do with you know specific expertises of different specialists, right? So for certain types of complicated injuries, an orthopedic surgeon can bring a perspective to the read that may be lost to the radiologist or vice versa or something like that, right? And that's certainly fair, but I have worked with groups where every single order is coming back and being independently in independently interpreted. And I don't understand the medically necessary rationale for that activity other than they've gotten a report, the report is pretty straightforward finding, and they're looking at it and they're saying, yeah, that's what it is, right? And, and to me, it will create a, an ex, a, a lot of level four visits that are justifiable per the MDM guidelines where these would not have been level fours before because that independent read is a straight up moderate complexity data component. So you've already got one out of the three. So now it's like, are you writing a prescription? Is it a complicated injury? And so I think it substantively impacts the bell curve. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a little bit of be careful what you wish for, because I think at some point this is going to be manifest in a much different coding profile than would have otherwise been the case. So we have a couple of questions that I want to put up for folks. Um, you know, because I think one of the things that I love about this program and that others love about this program is that we'll take your questions and we'll do our best to answer them based on the authoritative guidance that's available to us from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and what we're seeing as trends from the different payers. So Terry and, and, and Stephanie and Paul, um, I'll put this one out here for the three of you and Scott, obviously, if you want to jump in on this one as well, we have a few questions. So the question is, I have a provider who independently interprets MRI at every visit for every MS patient because they don't trust the radiologist who did the original interp. Can that be counted or can that count as medical necessity? Who wants to, Terry, you want to grab this one? <laughs> Scott's like, don't make me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if it is the, see now the old rules, I'd say no. The new rules, I think you're going to get it once. Um, if I'm reading this correctly, they're just reinterpreting it every visit. No, I would not let them have that for the same test. If they are, if there's a new problem, an exacerbation, a new condition, or a new, you know, reason to do another MRI, and again, they don't trust the radiologist, the doctor's going to have to document that. I mean, they're going to have to put that in their in their documentation. The radiologist interpretation was suspect, so the patient wants me to do it. Do you want to be the doctor that doc documents that? Because you may have to justify why you're always doing that overread, and that's really what it is. Um, <clears throat> I think there was also something put in there. If you put up the next question, Sean, that will CMS yeah. pay for both the independent interpretation and the legally required radiology interpretation? This is the one I wanted to speak to, too, because... 
what what they're what we're talking about here is the independent interpretation is a data point. So when you're saying, "Will CMS pay for both?" Well, Medicare and AMA apparently they Medicare hasn't commented that they disagree with AMA on this. So what the situation is is it, it creates an upcode. Like Scott said, it immediately takes you from a two or a three to a level four. So in data points, not the whole not the whole code. Um, not the whole encounter, but it still gives you a really good head start. So they're paying for it there as an upcode. And then, yeah, they're going to pay either the global, if it's an imaging center, or they're going to pay the independent radiologist a um, interpretation and then the hospital a technical. So I think it could really have workflows manipulated to have this happen. And whether it's on purpose or whether it's backdooring it, I, I just see this being a problem because why are they allowing this when they don't allow it when a lab test is ordered and then the patient comes back and they go over their a1c and they're talking all about this lab about you know diabetes and what the next thing is to me if you're going to allow it for one allow it for all and they're not allowing it on one side but they're allowing it on the other scott I, you have a yeah i i oh. i think it creates a lot of challenges right because it and i think in particular it creates challenges for the coders and the people who are trying to make sense of why some of these activities are taking place, you know, and so I work with a lot of clients who are bigger health systems and they don't necessarily, I, I want to say this in the nicest way possible, where the struggle occurs sometimes is how to get a bunch of people pulling the rope in the same direction. And the easiest way to do that sometimes is to point to the guidelines and say, just follow that. So don't worry about medical necessity, don't worry about that type of discernment to the point where, you know, to, to the original question, right, independently interprets the MRI at every visit because the provider doesn't trust the radiologist, right? So it's a different answer, but I feel like maybe find a different radiologist at the outset. But again, right, it's like, is that a basis point to make the payer essentially pay two times? Now, there's a couple of other questions in there um, that are important to contemplate, right? And so just so we're all on the same page, when a provider orders and reads on the same date of service and there's no radiologist involved, right? So if the provider is billing for the read, then that's, they only get credit for the order. They don't get credit for the, or, well, if they're billing for the read, they don't get credit for anything. If they're doing the order and they're just reviewing a report, they only get credit for the order. So there really is no order and read credit on the same date of service, even with this change. The concern is that this notion of the independent interpretation where it goes down to the radiologist and it comes back and they review it every time. And what I will tell like my clients for sure is that the medical necessity is important. The understanding of why you felt like you wanted to do your own read. And I, I think that nuance is going to be very difficult to pick up when we go through this chain of the rendering providers and the internal people and the coders and us, because the physician just gets in the workflow of saying, I independently interpreted this image. And I have physicians who still misuse that term. I have physicians who say in the documentation, I independently interpreted this X-ray and it shows this, but then I also see that they're billing for that X-ray and it doesn't fit the parameters of independent interpretation by those rules. And, and so that's a, you know, it's a great concern for me. And, and I think this is certainly something that, as I said before, if done every single time, one, it rewards the notion of you have a big entity and you just send everything to radiology and that's just your workflow. 
but it creates medical necessity concerns because I think the odds that you get either a moderate complexity problem or you get something like prescription drug management and then you come in and you say, well, this is a level four because I have two out of the three components. The odds of that are going to go up exponentially because I see cases all the time where it's like, it might be a sprain, it might be, you know, fairly straightforward, close fracture, and the patient is getting, you know, maybe they're getting over the counter medication, maybe they're getting a prescription, and they're much more clearly level threes. But when you throw in these independent interpretations, a lot of them are going to, I always say pencil out, right? And what I mean by that is I walk through the guidelines, I say, it's this for presenting problem, it's this for data, and it's this for risk. A lot of these are going to pencil out as being uh, level fours. And I think that's concerning. So, Stephanie, I want to come to you and I want to ask you a couple of questions. So first question is, as a senior compliance auditor and now seeing what this change is that's been produced, what are you doing to revamp and revise your audit process to be able to take into consideration these diagnostic and laboratory services that are being talked about right now uh, for change by the AMA. And then what happens when you have two providers of different taxonomies, different specialties employed by the same organization? Who gets, who gets what? Yeah. So first with audits, you know, one of the things I'm noticing, it's more so in the hospital setting. And I had mentioned this to Paul and Scott last week, I was doing an audit and it felt like it was almost impossible after the initial date to get a provider up to that high level with medical decision-making. And, you know, over the years, there's so many specialists who get mad when you tell them that a level three is not applicable through an entire hospital stay, if they're, especially if they're being discharged home. Um, at some point, they're getting better. Hopefully, they're getting better. They're leaving. They're not unstable. They're improving. So we've got to go down a level. So looking at the new guidelines, thinking about this discussion here, I just keep thinking about, I, I think Scott and Terry, you both touched on this a little bit, the fact that there may be some changes to workflow just to tweak the system just to make it so they can reach that higher level. And I, I do think that that would be a concern because even if we just think about, you know, the office outpatient setting before this started this year in the hospital, I had providers who I would be sitting there training on pediatrics and they would flat out say on a call, well, I'm just adding in another strep test because then I can get to my three, you know, when kids are coming in with their different, um, you know, cold complaints, basically. <laughs> so, you know, that's extremely concerning from a compliance perspective. And, you know, I'm just thinking of the same concerns in the hospital. How do we know this isn't just going to be added in? Now, it's different if we know that they really are having to go through the extra work. Um, I've, I've met with cardiologists, for example, who say that they will never trust the interpretation of someone from family practice. Clinical side, I don't even have an argument there because I don't know, but that's what I've heard from cardiologists. So from an audit perspective, we need to be aware, we need to be comparing other dates of service, seeing what the doctors are documenting, what the providers are documenting, making sure they're not trying to get credit for continued comparison day in and day out of the same test. 
Um, and then think about the whole picture of workflow. I know that's not something we can always tackle on the front side when we're doing an audit, but we can have those conversations with the compliance departments, with the auditing teams, with the coding teams, whoever it may be, to talk about those risks. Now, as far as the same or same tax ID, I'll, I'll call it the same entity, but different taxonomy. So we're dealing with different specialties. I see that as an issue because from the beginning, I've thought about this with the guidelines. And I know Scott and Paul have kind of had to give me a reset sometimes because I feel like I kind of go down a path on this. But when we trace the reimbursement and trace the money, it's all going to the same entity. It's all going to the same tax ID. So if you have, for example, in an ER department, protocol is for the internal radiologist to do um, all of the reads and then the internal cardiologist to do all the reads. I would think that's going to be problematic down the line because the money's all staying internal. It's not like it's going to an outside contracted radiology group when it's just the hospital department that's, you know, a couple floors away or wherever they're located. So I think that goes hand in hand too with the question we had earlier about paying for that interpretation. You know, will they legally pay the the radiology code and also give credit for the interpretation? And I think with the way they're framing this right now, they're going to, but I do see that as a problem down the line because they they don't like to pay in multiple areas. Yeah, I think those are great points. Paul, let me come to you for just a moment because one of the things that kind of stands out to me and, and you you specifically more than anybody else in our firm work with me on a day in and day out basis preparing for trial. And that explains as, as my we, drinking problem. Uh, but go ahead. <laughs> as we as we have seen in multiple awesome. <laughs> in, in multiple recent cases, um, cloning is a huge target. And my concern, right? My concern that will arise is if providers are addressing the um, the independent read at each and every single visit, how much of that is going to be cut and paste and carry forward uh, from prior encounters just to be able to, to Stephanie's point, get that one extra point. And then, Scott, I want to come to you for a couple of thoughts on this. And then I want to move into our favorite topic, Medicaid. Yeah. So we're only two and a half months in to a major rewrite of hospital documentation as it applies to medical decision-making. Uh, and I don't think there's a person who's on this panel today who hasn't seen some form of carry forward at the very least on a subsequent hospital note particularly as it applies to data. Uh, and, you know, there have been some cases where I've looked at uh, a provider who has closed his notes on another day, uh, on a day other than the day they saw that patient, and suddenly they're integrating data from after the date of service that they are attesting to, which is another adventure altogether. Uh, yep. One word that's being... Uh, that I haven't heard yet, 
in all the discussions we've been having on this topic is an old archaic word now from the 95 and 97 guidelines, and that word is visualization. It wasn't supposed to be that one doctor does an interpretation and another doctor says, well, I don't like your interpretation. I'm going to do another interpretation and I'm going to throw it into my uh, medical decision making on an E&M service just because, you know, I have MD after me and I've got a specialist degree and, huh, you know, but uh, it's it was supposed to be reserved for, OK, you take into account that report and you look at it. But when you used to get data credit for something like this, it would be an independent visualization of the image tracing or specimen. So you had that X-ray right in front of you and you looked at it. And then you kind of compared it to the radiologist's interpretation and said, well, in addition to what the radiologist said, here's what I see, or independent visualization of that image, uh, you know, supports the, uh, the uh, you know, the radiologist's interpretation or the person who wrote the report. Uh, and that's the way it's supposed to work. When, now, in a situation where you're trying to double dip and you're trying to say, all right, well, uh, I'm I'm uh, interpreting that myself, and I'm going to take a piece of that. You know, uh, you know that's where you get a really bad problem. And to the point of cloning and bringing uh, things forward, particularly in the hospital setting, you have to be able to determine was this actually reviewed, or are we just uh, populating paper with a lot of data points? that uh, look really good in a completed note once you put your signature on it. You know, how is all of that information affecting your decision making, particularly for a person in an acute care setting who is going to require either de-escalating or escalating levels of care, depending on the findings of some of those lab values that you're looking at That's or right. some of those radiological interpretations that you're reviewing. That's a great point. Scott. Let me come to you, and then, and then I want us to weigh in on Andrew Castleberry's uh, uh, comment that he's posted here, because I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a fair question, and I think it's a question that a lot of the listeners out there are going to have. But I, I want to give you a chance to comment first uh, on on what we've been talking about. Well, I, I think Paul made some good points, and one of the things I wanted to step back and say, you know, a couple of things, right, like. I've never seen a set of documentation guidelines that was not manipulatable based on the agenda or whoever wanted to manipulate something for whatever reason. So a lot of the implementation of or application of guidelines is essentially a good faith exercise in compliant behavior. And I think one of the conversations that we're having here, a concern, is the mechanisms in which providers may document things, you know, not, they, they will document things that have the net effect of resulting in a higher service level when it's not clear why those activities took place. And so one of the things that I know Stephanie and I have discussed is that when we audit inpatient subsequent service notes under the new set of guidelines, it seems more difficult to support 99233s on a regular basis because the category three risk is not the same. And so for a lot of providers, when we're going back and we're starting to do these results, providers who were having justifiable 99233s in the past may find those only supporting 99232s. And so there's some conversation about 
well, what makes it a 99233 under like these guidelines? And suddenly you run into the possibility of these independent interpretations, as we talked about. And I think all of us have, as auditors have to scrutinize carefully for carry forward, because to me, it's like you independently interpret something one time and now it's incorporated into your documentation, but also things like conversations with other providers and establishing the medical necessity of those activities. Because if I go into a subsequent service as a provider and I say, I talked about the this patient with a gastroenterologist, and by the way, I also independently interpreted this film. Now I'm in high complexity of data and we start to answer the question of what do I have to do to make this a three? And I think the work, what's important from a medical necessity perspective is that the work be you know, purposeful. So if, if all I see in a note every day is I talked about this patient with a gastroenterologist, I talked about this patient with a gastroenterologist, I'm going to want to have some insight into the necessity of these conversations with respect to the patient's overall care, because I think it is important to remember that logically patients that do get better, the service intensity, you know, shouldn't be the same. And we, we all have seen these situations before where it's like level three, level three, level three, level three discharge, right? And so, I think those are important considerations and those are things that that worry me because in some respects, these guidelines are probably easier to manipulate in a way because we're not talking about set thresholds of history and exam. We're just talking about individual data components. And in the inpatient side, we've all seen the voluminous amount of data that pops into these notes. And I don't know if they're looking at this or not. I mean, they could have high complexity data every day just based on the number of labs and x-rays and all these other items and so i think that's it's important to think about your compliance culture organizationally and how you're applying your interpretation of these guidelines in a way that does not create additional risk yeah. or and encourage it i think those are such great points and you know one of the things that I, I i'll quickly just talk about this because stephanie brought it up and now you're bringing it up which is the subsequent care hospital days. I can't tell you how many times during a trial I've heard the prosecutor's position of, okay, doctor, help me understand. We have level three, level three, level three discharge. How is it possible that we go from a high complexity of medical decision-making on a daily basis and then miraculously today you're sending the patient home when just yesterday you're telling me that their situation is of such a high complexity that they haven't turned the corner yet. They haven't gotten any better. So a word of caution, um, just as we talk about on the outpatient setting, it is critically important to pay very close attention to the data within your system at, you know, at your practice to take a close look to see if you have any aberrance in your provider's coding patterns or if any of your providers are outliers. I mean, Paul and I right now, we are working on a case, uh, <laughs> 12 cases simultaneously. Uh, you but know, and this, we, <clears throat> go ahead, go ahead, Scott. Uh, no, I was going to say, I'm sorry. The thing that I would add to that is to think about what percentage of the times we see things like an independent interpretation where it actually advances the finding versus just affirms what the radiologist has sent up. Like how many times do you see Such some great point. nuance in what the rendering is documenting mm -hmm. as part of the independent review versus just saying, you know, like, yeah, it's a close fracture, <laughs> you know, or whatever that is. And but I want to make a point. 
I, w- I want to make a point to that. And, 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 and this is something. So I was reading a complaint from the Department of Justice for a new case that we just took on last week. And in that complaint, the Department of Justice was using terms like the provider merely stated. OK, prosecutors are starting to pick very interesting words in their complaints to say the provider merely addressed the laboratory or the diagnostic. I mean, that that's almost verbatim as to what's listed in the complaint. And to your point, I agree with you. Simply regurgitating, you know, a, a fact that has been well established by the radiologist, irrespective of whether you think it's a political problem and you don't like it or not. If you are simply regurgitating a finding from another provider to take credit for the independent review of, you know, independent review and interpretation, that becomes a very insurmountable hill to climb from a defense standpoint. So, you know, Paul, um, you have another problem here. You have another problem too. What I'm seeing a lot of, and it's something everybody was mentioning. So what's the difference between a review of a test you ordered and an independent interpretation? There's no clear defined guidelines. Is it just because the doctor said I did an independent interpretation? Do you know how many doctors right now and how many providers? I see them say something like patient has um, one or more um, chronic illness with a severe exacerbation. They're taking it verbatim off of the um, revisions sheet that AMA put out and, and they don't even know what the, the condition is. And then I go to find it within the, the, you know, the record. And it turns out that their blood pressure went from, you know, 130 over 70 to 135 over 73. And I'm like, where's the severity? So that's still in normal range. And so I asked the provider that and they said, well, AMA says, if you say exacerbation, you are severe, you get a level five. I'm like, oh my gosh, face plant. So when I, when I see some of this, when it comes to this independent interpretation, and I wanted to address that, uh, the, one of the listeners that was saying, if this is simply a new recognized data point, it's not new. It, it is now a redefined. It came out on the errata, which means that AMA said, we're fixing something we, people complained about or didn't make sense. Um, it's being, it's not, you're saying, why is it being, why is it okay to, why is it not okay to justify that? Or why is it a concern? if the radiologist builds a completely different CPT code, interp code, because in my opinion, my professional opinion, it's double dipping, not just for the fact that like what Sean was saying, you're doing just a basic overread and you're just regurgitating what the radiologist said, but what makes it that independent interpretation? I think to Paul's point, I actually wrote that down. I love that Paul. I'm going to use it. What happened to the visualization of the image? I love that from the 97 guidelines. And I actually forgot about it until you mentioned it. If they would have put that in there and they would have said an independent interpretation can now be counted. Um, if you visualize the image and interpret to the patient, I would have been like, okay, cool. But no, they didn't say that. So we don't have clear defined rules kind of like, and I know I'm going off on a little bit of tangent, so I'll hand it back over to you, but kind of like the, when the, um, the CMS came out with their shared visit information and said, they have to complete in its entirety one of the elements of the medical decision-making and it has to meet the code descriptor. Okay, well, the code descriptor of the exam and or history says whatever the doctor thinks that is. <laughs> so, I That's mean, right. there's so many that, gray that areas here. 
<laughs> that is. And, and, you know, that's another, that's, that's another area that I think, you know, warrants at least 30 seconds of conversation. Because again, I get questions on a daily basis of how do you define a medically appropriate history or exam? And right. the answer that I give to every single person that asks me that question is ask your doctor. Right. And have it, in, it is and have subjective. that in your compliance program. What does That's that look right. like? Put it, it in your compliance program. It, it, it is up to your, it is up to the rendering provider to make a determination based on the patient's presenting problem or problems what constitutes a medically appropriate history and or exam in the absence to terry's point in the absence of definitive language i.e guidance from the centers for medicare and medicaid services you have to create an internal policy in your organization to say due to the vagueness of guidance or lack thereof by the federal government and or the payers for whom we participate we have determined that a medically appropriate history and or physical exam will vary from patient to patient depending on the type of problem or problems and the number of problems that they are presenting with period this is highly subjective and it is left to the clinical judgment of the provider caring for the patient at that time. Stephanie, let me come to you. Yeah, so real quick, um, with what Paul said, what Terry's talking about, it reminded me there's a lot of times when I work, especially with orthopedics, where I have to go in and state in general, even the radiology code is not supported due to the lack of interpretation, or at least the pro fee component. And usually what I do on my audit findings is I send it back to them with a TC modifier stating you've only supported that it's been performed because of the fact that they'll, they'll state, you know, um, left elbow x-ray, no abnormal findings. Well, to Paul's point, what are you looking at? What are you visualizing? What structures are you looking at to come to the determination that there's no abnormal findings? So I think that's a really good point from an audit perspective and what you were asking earlier, Sean, about what we can be looking at when we're performing our own reviews. I think Paul's point is really the main key here, looking at what they are visualizing, be able to see that in the wording that they're putting into their documentation. Excellent point. Scott, go ahead. I know you want to add something here. Yeah, I just want to pick up on one of the things that Terry said that I think is important. I'm seeing a lot of providers as well. We talk about medically appropriate history and exam. I'm seeing a lot of providers who are taking the words of the guidelines and putting them in the documentation, but without the context that actually makes it that thing. So I was working with a provider recently who was documenting treating patients for depression and they would just write out, it was a fairly templated note, but they would write depression, whatever they were doing. And then they would just say at the end of it, chronic worsening, just those two words. But then they would code it as F32.9, which is single episode of depression unspecified. And the history, which is the opportunity to sort of really add color around this, doesn't didn't really do that, right? There's very insufficient history. Most of it, I think, was just uh, that the patient had been given a couple of standardized forms to fill out, like the, the 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 GAD forms and those types of things. And so, you know, we always talk about the importance of establishing medical necessity throughout the case, right? Like the, the note tells the story of the patient through the history and through the exam, and we don't have the tent poles for that anymore. 
but I'm seeing a lot of instances where the quality of the documentation has been degraded in lieu of, I'm just going to repeat the phrase that's in the guidelines because that's what I've been told is this thing. So if I say something is chronic and worsening, I've licensed myself to code it as a level four, even if the rest of the note really doesn't add any particular insight to that. Or in the case of this depression thing I was talking about, the diagnosis code says single episode, but you've said chronic and, and you've sort of created this muck up. Yeah. There, when it comes to coding and when it comes to auditing, there is no phrase that pays. Please internalize that. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, people people will hyper focus on wording that says, well, this worked once, you know, but. Again, I remind you, the seven dirty words of any compliance uh, professional is, but we've always done it this way. You know, you know, it, it, using a, a right. phrase just because you think it's going to lead to reimbursement is not the way to go. Absolutely. Okay. So um, our final topic today. Can I do one more thing? Go ahead, Terry. Comes. So on everything we're talking sure. about, and then before you move on, I have a question for you, Sean, and probably Paul, too. You guys work on a lot of legal cases. And here's my question that I am just not, I'm just, it's not, it's not triggering in my head. I don't know what's going on. It seems like the rules are being relaxed so far that everything has come from an objective um, audit tool. So where we actually had clear guidelines, clear understanding of, we had audit tools and everything. AMA has already said they're not going to create another one. Uh, CMS says they're not going to do one. So we have to do our own um, as auditors. And the thing I don't understand, it seems like they're they're putting so much trust into, you know, what the providers are doing, which, okay, that's very, very sweet, very nice. But why, if they're doing that <laughs> from Sean, your, you know, your perspective, why are we seeing an uptick? I mean, we are seeing an uptick of fraud on DME, and now they just relax the requirements on needing referrals for ordering. They're relaxing the requirements on you know, history and exams, they're relaxing the requirements now on certain data points. And to me, this is almost like baiting the providers to do something inappropriate so that they can come back and basically say, well, you didn't do it right because here's our interpretation of it. And that's just so, I don't know, there's something there that seems a little suspect to me. I, I just don't understand what's going on because we, we've got some issues out there. So, so you raised some interesting points, right? Um, I think so, and I'm just going to give you my thoughts on this. I think what has transpired here was in the works for a period of time at the American Medical Association, right? Um, you never know if there's collusion between, you know, the federal government and a private entity. It, it, you know, one only needs to look at, you know, Twitter as an example for things to kind of blow up and get very interesting, right? And I really don't care about the Twitter files. Somebody else can worry about that stuff. But here's the thing. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think there's some baiting here, but you have to go back to the structure of the Medicare program, right? And commercial payers, because it's a pay and chase system, right? And the Office of Inspector General has cautioned CMS in numerous reports. Uh, I think one report was even as recent as last year that their quote unquote pay and chase model has created more finally more financial liability for the system and created more threats of insolvency than anything else 
The problem is CMS continuously, regardless of what administration is in there, has continuously pushed back. I could think back to the first Bush administration and then the Clinton administration and then the second Bush and then Obama and then Trump and now Biden. Every single administration has pushed back on the OIG from getting away from the pay and chase model. And I don't know if it's because the government systems have not been sophisticated enough to be able to engage in anything other than what it is, or if it's attributable to what Paul Spencer said before, we've always done it that way. Uh, I really don't know. But here's the thing. Um, the only way to mitigate your risk is to stay on top of it. You've got to continuously audit. You have to be objective about your audits as well. Take the daggum blinders off. Um, you don't doesn't mean you have to go to an outside entity to conduct your audits, but you better have somebody internally who's worth their weight in paper when it comes to saying they have a CPC. Um, in in many of the cases that I'm looking at right now, I told you I have 12 new cases that have come on since the middle of February. These are all civil and criminal cases. Every one of them from the federal government is Say, stating that our expert holds a CPC. Again, nothing against somebody with a CPC. Coders are, are supposed to be able to abstract information from the provider's medical record. But remember, the CPC is an administrative function, okay? Being a certified coder is an administrative function. It is not a clinical function. You do not get to impose clinical judgment. You do not get to impose medical decision-making from a clinical perspective. So again, yeah, Paul, to your point, you've got to create a query process because if you as a coder or you as an auditor take on the, take on the, the, the liability of downcoding physician services or non-physician practitioner services or upcoding them, you are the one taking on the inherent liability, especially if you haven't queried the provider to get their permission to do so or to advise them as to why you believe their level of service is not substantiated or it underreports what they have done. So well, and there, I want to go to some. Go ahead. No, sorry. I was going to say there's a very good comment that just came through about if they refuse to to define it, then we should in the compliance program. And yes, absolutely, absolutely right. You absolutely. Should. Absolutely, 100%. So let me, because I know we want to go into Medicaid, and Terry, I'm, I'm going to put you here in the center square, but as I do that, I want to share something with um, our uh, folks. So let me just put this up right here, and this should be our segment to lead into it. So yesterday or last night, because I couldn't sleep, um, I was reading the uh the fiscal year 2022 annual report from the Medicaid fraud control units. And to speak to what's going on in Medicaid, keep in mind that Medicaid alone recovered $1.1 billion. The Mafukus recovered $3.08 for every $1 spent on their investigations. They had 553 civil settlements and judgments. They had 1,018 individuals or entities excluded from participating in the federal funded healthcare programs. And between global and non-global cases, 
62% of their recoveries from a civil standpoint, which amounts to $641 million, 62% of those were domestic cases, non-global cases, 946 cases of fraud, 381 patient abuse or neglect cases, resulting in a total of 1,327 convictions. So for anyone who doesn't believe that um, CMS is um, being hype or, or that Medicaid is being hyperactive, and I know my screen transitioned over to what the OIG found. Uh, that was another post that I did this morning. Um, Medicaid is hyper aggressive. And not only that, their guidance on telehealth very significantly. So Terry, let me kick it over to you and let's take this as our last topic for our roundtable. Let's talk about what's going on with Medicaid and telehealth. So Medicaid is, is tough to understand because it does start at the federal level, but then states are um, required to then have their own rules and, and the states actually supersede what the federal government says, even though they share some and they get some funding from them as well. It's kind of a, it's kind of a hard to understand program. Um, and here in California, where I'm at, we also have Medicaid HMO. It's called um, Caloptima Medical. So it's a lot different in different states. So you have to really know your state um, when it comes to Medicaid. But here's something on telehealth that came up. First of all, it's about consents. And I know we have everybody out there saying, you don't have to get consent for, for Medicaid or for telehealth or anything. Yes, you do. And so let's just put it right there. Yes, you do. First of all, remember what a consent is. If you look at the Social Security Act, consents talk about being able to charge the patient. It's about money. Always follow the money. It's not necessarily about can the patient have the service, believe it or not. It's about can you charge them for the service? Well, they have an out-of-pocket. But when you, you have to make sure that the patient is aware of that, that they are, um, that they can um, return to in-person services at any time. And apparently what's been happening with telehealth, not just Medicaid, but everywhere else, is that because there's this, I don't want to call it an assumption, but there's this um, image that people think that telehealth services are less expensive than uh, in-person as far as to the payer and to the patient. And so, or actually to the physician that they're, you know, cheaper to, to process. Maybe they are, but right now we've got some payment parity, so it's hard to tell. But so patients are being asked to be seen in person. They don't want to do telehealth. And a lot of the doctors are saying, well, I'm only going to see my Medicaid through telehealth. Well, Medicaid came out and said, not so fast. If the, it says providers must allow beneficiaries to elect to return to in-person services at any time. And they may not elect to see, um, receive their services uh, through telemedicine if they ask. It also says for audio only situations where the beneficiary does not possess or have access to video technology when clinically appropriate, you also have to document that. Now it didn't say when the doctor doesn't have it, you're expected to have it. We're three years into the pandemic. It's gonna end in two months. If you're doing telehealth services, you need to have an audio and video platform. If you don't have it, that's moved away from Skype and um, FaceTime, then you need to get it or, or telehealth isn't for you. But it also talks about documentation requirements that it says providers fully document the service rendered and the telecommunication type and if audio only, you must document the reason, again, that audio and video technology could not be used and the 93 modifiers should be attached to it. And Medicare came up with something similar, but it's buried in different MAC carriers. Um, but Medicaid is, is important because what Medicare puts out, Medicaid doesn't always buy into. 
And Paul, I'll throw it to you on that one because I know you have a comment on that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, well, uh, the most important thing is that, uh, you know, be aware of your state plan amendments on the state level as to what as to what is accepted. You know, you know, just to find out who your auditing entity is, is pretty, uh, uh, you know, is is pretty important because that's kind of buried and you don't find out until you get the letterhead and said, who is this? who's coming at me and telling me that I've built all my services wrong and is asking for money with a purely monetary uh, uh, reason for doing so. Um, you know, not every med it, it theoretically Medicaid is supposed to cover the same things from state to state, but that is only in theory. In practice, when you're going from state to state, you have to make sure that the coverage for specific services is there. Yeah, I Absolutely. want to speak real quickly to the Go consent ahead, side. So I had a, a question this week, and the question that we received really wasn't even about the consent side. It's just the way that the person framed this scenario made me very concerned. So basically, they were asking questions about billing. And in their question, they said that the patient called the office, and then they also said, that they never bill telehealth codes. So after I answered everything that they were asking, I couldn't help but address this particular problem because there's so many times where I hear providers say, you know, well, I talked to the patient, so I went ahead and build, build for this service. But one thing you were talking about, Terry, in, in those guidelines and what they're laying out there is the fact that the patient needs to have an option. And when we talk about consent, the incoming call is not the patient consent. The patient being aware that it is a billable service, that there is most likely going to be out-of-pocket out of costs, then deciding if they want to proceed with a lesser service over the phone or coming into the practice for a full encounter is where that's going to land. Because for them, if we're billing that out at a level four regardless, for example, the, the scenario I was being asked about involved decisions being made with the patient's care, medications being started. So if that's something that's moderate complexity, the patient has the same out-of-pocket cost, maybe they don't want that over the phone call or over the phone if it's a quick three-minute call with that provider. So consent is not just accepting a call. They have to fully be aware, fully you know, consent to the fact that they have to pay for that. And then outside of that, you know, one of the things that really concerns me with all of this, and Scott, I know you can speak to this as well, but still three years later, we see so many issues with telehealth that's been implemented during the pandemic. So even with that one question I dealt with recently, they're saying they never bill telehealth, but yet they had an incoming telephone call, which to me seems like it was audio only, I highly doubt they said, oh, wait, let me go switch it over to video. So here they're telling me they never use telephone ENM, but yet they always bill established patient codes. Oh, I see all of that stuff. I see telemedicine where the documentation says that they couldn't establish the video, so they just did it over the phone. And it's a Medicare patient and it comes through as an established visit anyway. I had one provider I audited recently who said, um, uh, in case this is a telehealth visit, here's all the consent stuff, basically, and I baked it into every note. 
And the irony of that 10 chart audit was the two telehealth visits didn't, didn't have the language in it. Um, and, you know, look, I, I think Terry said it very well. We're three years into the pandemic. If you're going to be a telehealth provider, get your stuff together. No FaceTime, no crazy stuff. Get your consents in place. Get your patient communication in place. Understand the rules for you know, I'm making a phone call related to reviewing a lab versus doing a full on visit uh, and all of those things. Otherwise, you know what? The public health emergency is ending. You had a great run with telehealth. Start bringing people back into the office. But this shouldn't be something that you are uh, winging at this point. I agree. Great commentary. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Compliance Guys Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. Uh, just a quick programming note. Uh, I've heard from a lot of folks that they miss the noontime hour uh, for the broadcast. And we've heard you loud and clear. Uh, I know that our rebroadcasts are getting um, about 2,000 views every time they rebroadcast. But our live shows are not seeing the same numbers that we were prior to moving to the four o'clock hour. We are going to, starting next Monday, move back to the 12 noon Eastern Standard Time uh, hour. And we will once again accommodate the requests of all of you. Terry and I will be back tomorrow with our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. I'm quite certain it will be a lively discussion, which will probably turn into a debate between. Terry and myself, as it usually does. And we have some other great stuff lined up for the rest of the week on the Compliance Guys. So stay tuned. So until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to the Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.